Somebody's excited to be in Acts. <laughs> Acts chapter 18, and uh, if you're physically able, would you please stand with us as we read God's Word. We'll be reading Acts 18, verse 1 through 17. Then Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife Priscilla. And they had left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all the Jews from Rome. Paul lived and worked with them, for they were tent makers just like he was. Each Sabbath found Paul at the synagogue, trying to convince Jews and Greeks alike. And after Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia... Paul spent all his time preaching the word. He testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed and insulted him, Paul shook the dust from his clothes and said, Your blood is upon your heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And then he left and went to the home of Titius Justus, a Gentile who worshipped God and lived next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, and everyone in his household believed in the Lord. Many others in Corinth also heard Paul, became believers, and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and told him, Don't be afraid. Speak out. Don't be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack and harm you, for many people in this city belong to me. So Paul stayed there for the next year and a half, teaching the word of God. But when Gallio became governor of Archaea, some Jews rose up together against Paul and brought him before the governor for judgment. They accused Paul of persuading people to worship God in ways that are contrary to our law. But just as Paul started to make his defense, Gallio turned to Paul's accusers and said, Listen, you Jews, if this were a case involving some wrongdoing or a serious crime, I'd have a reason to accept your case. But since it is merely a question of words and names and your Jewish law, take care of it yourselves. I refuse to judge such matters. And he threw them out of the courtroom. The crowd then grabbed Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and beat him right there in the courtroom. But Gallio paid no attention. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would take the reading of your word and bless it and use your word uh, to strengthen your church and to accomplish your purposes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And be seated. Human communication is an interesting thing. Uh, <laughs> often I find myself... Uh, uh, discovering how difficult it is when you think you have clearly communicated, you have said exactly what you meant and you have meant what you said, and then you find out they had no clue what you were talking about. And, uh, you know, this is it's, uh, interesting, especially at home, because you think, well, these folks, they know, right? They should understand. They've heard. And uh, there's this little, they should read my mind. It's kind of built in there. Communication is a, is a lot harder than we think. Uh, sometimes that's, uh, there have been days when I've stood at the back of the church and people come back and say, 
Brother Tim, when you said so-and-so, that was so good. And I'm like, I didn't say that. I mean, I really don't remember. Maybe my memory's gone bad, but I don't remember that. But uh, didn't mean to say that, at least. And You know, um, communication involves words, but it involves more than words. Uh, it involves expressions of the eyes and tone of voice. I'm the parent of three teenage children right now. I understand very well how much is communicated when the right words are said, but the wrong movements of the face and the eyes and the tone of voice. Uh, we all know there's a lot more to it than words. And, and so we understand we have to read between the lines a lot of times to really communicate with people, to really understand. And I want to suggest that that same thing is true as we are listening to communication from God. As we are reading his word, hopefully prayerfully, hopefully asking God's spirit to, to shine and, and to open our eyes to see what we need to see. Uh, we need to see what's there and what's not there as well. We need to read between the lines at times. And so this morning, I want us to focus on what it didn't say. In this passage of the Bible, we'll see what it did say, but also what God didn't say, but we learn from what he didn't say this morning. And so we start off in this passage, um, tracking along with the Apostle Paul. He's left Athens, which was uh, a great cultural center uh, for uh, the ancient world and especially for Greece. Um, all the intellectuals, all the philosophers, they all hung out there. That was a, a center of learning and knowledge and of, of, of people of the academy, those types of people. That's where he'd been there. But when he gets to Corinth, he gets to people of the world. He gets to, and I say world in that most negative sense, you might say a, a worldly people. Corinth uh, was a great port city in the ancient world. Uh, might, have, might have numbered close to uh, three-quarters of a million people in population. Huge city for the ancient times. Um, it actually had two ports on it on either side because there was a narrow strip there. That isthmus was a narrow strip. Uh, today there's a canal that, that ships can actually go through there. But back then they had a way of actually carrying the ships over land and, and they could avoid a long journey around. And, and so just like today back then, Seaports are known for being colorful places, uh, interesting places. But if that wasn't enough, there was also on a, um, up the hill in Corinth, about 2,000 uh, meters above sea level, there was a temple to the, uh, to the goddess Aphrodite. And in this temple, there stayed a 1,000 uh, temple prostitutes who would come down into the city every night uh, to uh, worship, we'll say, in their religion. And so this was, this was a crazy place. In fact, Corinth had, a, had such a bad reputation. This is, this, is like, this is beyond New Orleans or whatever city or you know, Las Vegas or whatever. It had such a bad reputation that if you called someone a Corinthian girl, that meant they were a prostitute. I mean, that's the kind of city this was. And Paul enters into this city after leaving the city of learning and philosophy and high morals and all this sort of thing. Uh, he comes into the city of Corinth, and he begins to minister there. And uh, the Bible tells us that he meets some people 
uh, um, first he meets the man named Aquila, and then, of course, he meets the wife who's name is Priscilla, and we're going to hear a whole lot about this uh, couple in the future. They're actually mentioned again in Acts, and they're in some of Paul's letters. You might say they were like the original power cup, Christian power couple. I mean, they were, they were a team that worked together and did some great things. But uh, the reason that he met um, Aquila and Priscilla is because they actually shared the same trade. Paul's trade, along with their trade, was to be a tent maker. Now, some of you guys are saying, wait a minute, I don't remember this. We've been going all the way through Acts, and I don't remember anything. Uh, that's in stereo, y'all. Isn't that interesting? Um, I don't remember anything about Paul being a tent maker. Well, that's because it hasn't said anything about it up to this point. There really just wasn't a reason to say it. But in the ancient world, uh, rabbis were, um, generally had a trade, and they were um, uh, suggested uh, to have that trade and then you know, do their thing on the synagogue. And the thing about it was that um, every one of them had a trade. This was a common trade, could be used everywhere. Uh, tent making, because the ancient world people were very mobile and they needed lots of tents. But a lot of your Bibles, if you look closely by a tent maker, it might have a star, an asterisk or something. And, and lay, they say you can also translate that leather worker or cloth worker. You could, they, these folks could make all sorts of things. And so he met up with Aquila and Priscilla because they shared a common trade. He found out they were Christians who had recently come from Rome because the Emperor Claudius had kicked out uh, a bunch of Jews out of Rome. And so they met and actually started working together because at that point, Paul didn't have uh, any financial support with him. And so he started doing that. Now, here's what the Bible doesn't say. It tells us that Aquila and Priscilla came from Rome. But what it doesn't tell us is that there was a church in Rome that was founded without any apostle being involved. This is really profound. This is really almost mind-blowing when you think about it. Because here we are, we're following the journey of the Apostle Paul as he goes uh, from place to place in Turkey and then in Greece. And we know where the apostles, the other apostles are. They're back uh, in Jerusalem, still at the mother church there, strengthening others who go out. And later on, church tradition will tell us that the apostles go in different directions. Uh, Thomas goes to India. Peter ends up in Rome. But right now, they're not there yet. And so this church in Rome will never know who started it. Maybe in heaven we'll know. But here on earth, we don't know. We just know that Rome is the capital city. It received people coming in and out and moving all around. It was the center of the ancient world. And somebody moved to Rome with their family, and they were Christians. They had heard the word. And then maybe they met another family, or they started telling somebody else about Jesus. And the church at Rome was thriving without an apostle ever being there. Years later, uh, Paul finally makes it to Rome, and before he gets there, he writes a letter to the Roman church. Uh, we have it as the, Ro the book of Romans in our Bible. 
But what God is showing us when he doesn't tell us about an apostle founding this church, he's showing us that God works through everyday ordinary people to do his work, to spread his word, to share his gospel. It didn't take a Peter or a Paul or a John or a Thomas or any of them to start the church at Rome. Some average ordinary Christian began that church and it grew and grew and grew until it became eventually the largest church. We move on and we see Paul tells us, uh, or Luke tells us about Paul's uh, plan here. So he lives and works with these tent makers. And then every Sabbath he's going into the synagogue and he's, he's preaching and trying to convince the, the Jews and the Gentiles. And then in verse 5 it says, And after Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul spent all his time preaching the word. He testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. The Bible tells us here that he was preaching every Sabbath day in the synagogues. And then it tells us when Timothy and Silas, when they arrive on the scene, when they get there, all of a sudden the pattern changes. The Bible says he begins spending all of his time sharing the gospel. All of the time, not just on the Sabbath day preaching in the synagogues. What changed? Well, obviously there was a, uh, a, mat a matter of financial support that had been brought to Silas and to Timothy from the churches. And we know from Paul's letters that churches would support him in his work and send that support. It's very interesting that Paul, um, he argues very strongly in, in his letters for the right of a minister of the gospel to be paid uh, for that work and to make a living in that way. And yet, Paul, as strongly as he argues for that, he also, at different times in his life, he refuses that right. He turns it down. And so we see Paul in different situations. Sometimes Paul is serving in an area where there's an active, uh, good church, things are going well, and that church can support him for the work he's doing right then and there. And that's how it happens. Other times he moves on to a place where there's not yet a healthy or functioning church, and he's still supported by a previous church where he administered. And they're, they're sending funds to help his missionary work as he goes to this new areas uh, so that he can spend all his time sharing the gospel. Then in places like Corinth, he arrives, and guess what? Apostles have to eat just like everybody else. Did you know that? And, and Paul was out of money, and so what does he do? He starts working, and he starts making some money, and he meets some people in his trade, some other Christians, and, and the church begins to grow. But right then and there, right now, he's, just, he's making a living, spending his time working and preaching when he can. And then when Timothy and Silas show up and they bring the funds from this other church, at that point, he is freed up to share the gospel full time, uh, to, to lay aside that tent making and do his ministry all the time. What this tells us by what the Bible doesn't say is that when we are to spread the gospel, to move forward God's kingdom, 
flexibility is required. We need to be willing and able and learn how to adjust to new circumstances and new situations. We've talked a lot about how Paul has certain patterns in ministry where he goes in and he, he first goes to a synagogue and then he, he stays there as long as he can until that doesn't work out anymore and, and then he moves on to, to working with the Gentiles. And he does follow that pattern, but he's not stuck in that pattern. We saw it was a little different when he was in Athens and other places. And, and even the financial support pattern, he's not stuck in. As Christians, as a church, uh, we have to realize that God's kingdom and his mission, the Great Commission, will not be fulfilled if we get stuck in certain ways of doing business and, and we can't ever be flexible and say, here's a new situation, here's a new opportunity. We have to think outside the box. We have to do things a little bit differently. So remember that Paul followed patterns to a degree, but he was willing and able to change and adjust when it was necessary. We go on and we read how the ministry is going well there, uh, and, uh, but there's some people who oppose him. Just like everywhere, there's some strong opposition from the Jews who do not believe. Again, every time he goes to the synagogue, there he preaches. Hey, guess what? Fellow countrymen, you guys who are Jews just like me, the Messiah we've been waiting for, he has now come and his name is Jesus and the proof of it is the resurrection. And there are always Jews who eagerly lap up that news and are excited and then there are always Jews who reject, just like among Gentiles. There are those who receive and accept and there are those who reject. And so eventually there comes this crisis moment uh, where those who reject the gospel, who do not believe in Jesus, uh, they get so angry and they, they blaspheme or they push Paul out, they do whatever. And so Paul at this point says, all right, he shakes the dust off of his clothes, which is a symbolic way of saying, hey, I've done everything for you. I can't, I can't any longer assume that we are brothers together in faith because you've rejected Christ and I'm going to have to move on. And so um, it's very interesting. He moves on to the house right next to the synagogue. Now, have you guys ever been around a community and you've seen here's First Baptist Church and here's Second Baptist Church or here, you know, here's Fellowship Church and here's Friendship Church and they're right there are stones throw away, and I think there's some stones that have been thrown, you know, these, these things. That doesn't always sit well when a, a new ministry started. So you can imagine as these Jews who are already frustrated, the ones who are unbelieving Jews, they were already frustrated with Paul and everything that he was doing. Now he says, bye, I'll see you. Oh, by the way, I'm going to set up next door. I mean, this was kind of in your face, so to speak. And the ministry keeps growing. It says even the leader of that synagogue ends up believing and coming to be a part of the Christians. And, and God is moving and working. But again, there's people who don't like it and who oppose Paul. And the Bible tells us that um, something special happens. In verse 9, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and told him, Do not be afraid. Speak out. Don't be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack and harm you, for many people in this city belong to me. 
So Paul stayed there for the next year and a half teaching the Word of God. We're told that Paul receives a vision. But what we're not told, but we have to read between the lines, is there was a need for that vision. You know, God doesn't waste anything. God didn't appear in a vision to Paul just because uh, it's on my checklist. I guess it's been about a year, two years now since I've uh, shown him any miraculous signs, so it's, uh, it's time for me to do a vision. No, God gave him this vision because there was a need for it. And so what the Bible doesn't tell us, but we learn when we read through the lines, is even the greatest Christians you know need encouragement. Even the people that you think have it all together, that you think they're not broken like you are, you think that they're not troubled, you think that, man, they have troubles, but those troubles don't bother them, that they've got it all together and everything is great with them and I wish I could be like them. Those people need encouragement too. So see, some of us, you know, we, we get real self-centered and we don't encourage anyone, anybody, but sometimes if we're a little bit more sensitive, we say, well, I'm going to encourage uh, the people who are down on their luck or the people who are, you know, down and outers, and those people who are doubtful in their faith. But sometimes we forget that those people that we always count on, who were stalwarts in the faith, and they may be a, an elder or a Sunday school teacher or, or grandma or somebody who you know you can always count on, we can almost take those people for granted. Because we say, oh, they've got great faith. They're fine without my encouragement. They don't need any help from anybody. But I can say that if God, who doesn't waste a thing, if he believed that the Apostle Paul needed some encouragement, I believe that all of us need encouragement. So I want you to think today about people um, who've touched your lives, who've been a rock for you when you've gone through hard times, those friends or those family members or those church members, coworkers, whoever it is, who's really been there for you, and you look up to them, when's the last time that you encouraged them? When's the last time you said, you know what, I'm thankful for you and all that God has done through your life to bless mine? And I just want to encourage you. I think a lot of you, and I see God at work in your life. What a blessing that would be for you to do that to someone else. And I can guarantee they need it because we all need it, right? Even the greatest Christians need encouragement. Fourth and finally, I want us to see that God works behind the scenes to build his church, to protect his church. The end of this passage that we read today is about a guy named Gallio. He comes to power, and all of a sudden, as he's the new governor put in place, the Jews that have been disgruntled, the Jews that have said, we're sick and tired of Paul and him turning people on to this new faith, this new religion. We don't buy it at all. We want to get him in trouble. And a new governor comes into place over this uh, region, over this whole area of southern Greece. And his name is Gallio. He's actually known uh, from history. 
He is the younger brother of a guy named Seneca, who was a famous uh, Stoic philosopher who actually tutored um, the emperor Ro, uh, Nero, who would come on the scene later on. So he's kind of a well-known, famous guy from history. And we, we know from history that he was in this position uh, around A.D. 50 and 51. So it's kind of neat. There are some, this is a place here where we can correlate exactly from history. And we know, okay, this is what, about 20? All of this stuff that's happened, we've been reading about so far, has happened in about around 20 or so years, give or take a few years, since Christ uh, died and rose again. 20 years into the church life, approximately, okay? That's where we are. We know this is A.D. 49, A.D. 50 when this happens. So Gallio comes into power, and these Jews say, we're going to get Paul now. And they uh, storm him, they, they, they grab him, they storm up to the courthouse, and demand to be heard, Gallio, we got this guy, and he's breaking the law. He's not, he's not worshiping, he's not doing right the way he should. Now, there's something interesting to know here. In the uh, Roman world at this time, the emperor worship was growing. And to where people had to say, Caesar is Lord, and they had to pray to Caesar. But the Romans found that the Jewish people were particularly obstinate about praying to anyone except for Jehovah God. And there had been some other circumstances in history that I won't take the time to go into. But there was, for some specific reasons, they were given an exception where Jews only had to pray for Caesar, not to Caesar. So this was a pretty big deal that this particular group of people didn't have to pray to Caesar. The Jews were coming, and they were saying, hey, here's this bunch of people, and they're not us, they're not Jews, and, and, you know, and they're, they're just stirring everything up, and they're causing illegal things to happen. And again, we've talked about this before. If you're in Rome, Rome wants nothing that causes unrest or disturbance. They'll crush anything that seems like it's a movement uh, to cause unrest. And they thought, we've got Paul now. And so they lay all their case out. <laughs> and Paul gets up, and it's, the Bible says he's about ready to speak. And we don't ever get to hear Paul's defense because he doesn't ever get to give it. Because the Bible says at that point, Gallio says, whoa, hold on, Paul. <laughs> you Jews, <laughs> you're talking about your own little funny words and theology and your own religion. And you know what? You guys... You're bothering me with a bunch of nothing. This isn't about Rome and Roman law. I don't even want to hear it. Get out. He kicks them out of the courtroom. And as they're being kicked out, this mob of people who was probably there because they wanted to see someone get punished real bad, you know, oh, Paul's going to get beat up. Let's go watch. <laughs> when that doesn't happen and they're disappointed and disturbed, they actually take the leader of these Jews who are opposing Christians and they start beating on him, the Bible says, right there on the, the gates, the edge of the courthouse. And Gallio just says, hmm, that's interesting. And he, he ignores it. He doesn't do a thing about it. So what does this mean for the Christians? It is a huge deal for the Christians in this area, in that whole area. And it might have even affected further places in the Roman Empire. But certainly in Greece, Gallio had basically officially said, you know what, 
these Christians, they're just a part of the same, uh, same stream of belief that the Jews are. So therefore, now, now not only were Jews exempt from praying to Caesar, now the Christians, because they could be considered part of the same family of faith, they now would be exempt from praying to Caesar. And now what happened to old Sosthenes, who was that guy who got beat up, I guarantee you everybody around there said, you know what, Gallio doesn't want to mess with this, and I don't want to be beat up like Sosthenes, so we're not messing with these Christians anymore. And so Paul ended up staying there for one of the longer periods of time, really here and I think in Ephesus. He, he doesn't usually stay very long, a few weeks, a few months, but he ends up staying here ministering uh, for a year and a half under protection of God and does great things there. So the Bible said a lot of things, but we also learn from what it didn't say. It didn't say anything about an apostle founding the church at Rome because they didn't. An average, ordinary Christian started that church. It didn't say anything really about uh, what Paul, why he didn't take pay in certain circumstances and situations. But when you put all the pieces together, you see Paul was flexible. And he understood for the gospel to spread, there had to be flexibility in learning new ways. It didn't say that Paul needed encouragement. But if he didn't, God wouldn't have given it. God showed up and gave him that vision because Paul, like everybody else, needed to be encouraged. And God didn't say exactly what he was doing and how he was working through Gallio. But you know, the Bible says that the heart of the king is in God's hand. You see, God is working. It's called providence. God works behind the scenes in through ordinary situations in people's lives to cause and bring about his will to be done. God can do the supernatural, and he certainly does. But God also works through natural means to bring about his purposes and to build his church just like he did right here. So I encourage you, every time you read the Bible... And you take some time afterward to think about it. Because that's what you should do. That's what biblical meditation is all about. It's simply thinking about what you've just read and what you've learned. Think about what God did say. But also think about what God didn't say. Because often that will teach you just as much. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you. And Lord God, we're so thankful that we could be here in your house today, that we're able to worship you. God, thank you that you love us and you see us through. Lord, you don't always give us a 10-year plan or even a one-month plan, but God, you, you direct us as much as we're needed. You give us everything we need. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be encouragers today to look around and to think about all of those, God, that need encouragement. Maybe that's obvious and they're down and out and they're in the dumps and it's a tough time in their life, but maybe they look like they have it all together. But God, they really need a touch from you and that touch can come through one of your sons or daughters. 
God, thank you for your word and what it teaches us. As we come now to our our time of um, commitment, Lord, I pray each of us would reflect on how you've been working in our lives and what you want to do uh, in and through our lives. How we might surrender to you. Lord, bless this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.